We're going to look at the same passage we looked at last week, Ephesians chapter 5. We're going to start in verse 25. We're going to read down to 6-4. And this will be the second of three talks that we do, three or four, on family worship within our spheres of worship talk. And um, last week we laid the groundwork for family worship. I spoke specifically to husbands because I do believe that it is specifically their role ordinarily to be the spiritual leader in the house. Paul is very clear about that in 1 Corinthians, in um, Ephesians 5. Also, I would note that God gave the command to Adam not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil before he even created Eve out of Adam. That's a significant point. Paul will draw on that when he says the man was created first and then the woman. And so it was God's um, specific role relation. It's not chauvinism. It reflects something of the um, something of the um, uh, I'm trying to think of a word that will help you with this. We, we say economic uh, reflects something of the economic relationship between the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in the Trinity. So if we don't like role relations, we don't like the Trinity. Um, I don't know how else to say that. But with that as some sort of entry into this, we are going to pick back up on family worship, and we're going to look here this morning at Ephesians 5, 25 to 6, 4. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we ask you to be present with us. We ask you to help us to tune our minds and hearts into your word. We pray that you would give us humble hearts and believing hearts. We pray that you would fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that you would enable us by grace through faith to consider him and to fix our eyes on him and to come to him. We pray, our God, that you have mercy on us and on our families, that we would honor you in our homes, that your word would be central, that the gospel would be central, and that salvation would come to every home of every family represented in this place, to our children, even to our parents who may be aging, to our cousins and our aunts and our uncles. We pray, Lord Jesus, that you would have mercy on us and that you would grant us grace that we might be faithful in using the means you've given us. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Ephesians 5, beginning in verse 25, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same wives, husband, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Children. Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Last week, we talked about what it means for fathers to enter into that role in washing their wives with the water of the word as Christ does the church, and what it means for fathers to bring their children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, not provoking them to wrath. And we said in that uh, that talk that the default, the sinful default, is to be heavy-handed. This is why Peter says to husbands, to not be bitter with your wives because the default is to be bitter. The default with fathers with their children is to be heavy-handed and to provoke them to wrath. And we said there, not even just in the spiritual sphere, but even in fathers trying to bring their children up so that they'll excel in life. And, And that quote I found so helpful from Sinclair Ferguson where he said, Fathers often do this because they're more interested about what they're going to write on the next Christmas letter. It's more about their reputation. And and in that sense, what Paul is warning against is trying to raise your children for your name, for your greatness, so that you'll be seen as someone who has succeeded. Um, Doing things to succeed, and we all have that in our hearts, out of fleshly interest, always yields bad fruit always produces bad fruit. And every one of us shifts into that gear constantly. I do it in ministry. You do it with your work at work. We do it in our families. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our parenting. And so Paul gives us these principles. And one of the things I think is interesting is that the Bible doesn't give us a play-by-play instruction book on family worship. I have often, over the years especially within our circles in, Re- in the Reformed Church, notice that men who are very zealous for family worship are often the ones that will seek to bind your conscience to do it exactly the way that they do it. I have heard men, godly men, men wiser, smarter, and more widely used than me do that very thing. Um, oftentimes there are good examples. For instance, in the Dutch church, Um, It is a legacy of many, many, many generations for the families to do devotions at every meal, to gather morning, noon, and night with the family, and at every meal to get the word out and to read through the scriptures and to pray together. And oh, that God would give us grace that we would do those sort of things. But God doesn't tell you, you must do that. And just as it is a sinful default, In us as fallen creatures, even as redeemed fallen creatures, even as the default is for husbands to be uh, bitter with their wives and heavy handed with their children, it is the default to take anything that I tend to excel in or that I've actually made advancement in and then to bind everybody else with that. Um, That's the heart of idolatry. Idolatry is taking something that you think is attainable and then telling others you should be doing this too. It's the heart of legalism. The heart of legalism is actually taking something I'm good at and then judging everybody else for not being good at what I think I'm good at. And that's the heart of legalism because it's something that it's easily attainable. So the Pharisees did this. They saw the fourth commandment not in its depths and its unattainableness, They saw it as something easily obtained, and they put their particular practices around it, and they they made extra laws around it, and then they bound everybody else and judged even Jesus. And don't you dare go saying you don't have that in your heart. We have the same father as the Pharisees. It's Adam. And so they even judged Jesus 
for not keeping their laws and their rules. So at the outset of this talk, I want to give this caveat. And you may say after these talks, man, Nick just gives a lot of caveats and qualifies everything. And we just wanted the nuts and the bolts. I'm not going to do that because that's not what you need first and foremost. What you need first and foremost is not do this and this and this and this and the Puritans did this and the Dutch did this and these people did this. You need to understand the nuances and deceitfulnesses of our hearts. And I think Paul very clearly sets that out. Even in that warning, do not provoke your children to anger. But Paul then gives us the positive. So we considered heavily last week the negative, but now he gives us the positive. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The same idea is present in this positive command there in Ephesians 6, 4, that is found really back in um, Ephesians 5, and especially where Paul talks about nurturing and nourishing. Notice verse 29. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so as we enter into an attempt to um, be faithful and doing family worship, worshiping God together with our family, we have to do it in a spirit of nourishment and cherishment and gentleness. Like There are a lot of fine examples of this, especially in the Reformed Church, and there are, as I said last week, many abuses of it, but what we need to lead with is when we do these things, and, and I know this all too painfully well, what happens is our children don't listen, they squirm around, they zone out, they look at trees outside, they play with toys on the table, and the nourishing and the cherishing go out the window because it's, again, it becomes more about me and my exercising control than about God and me shepherding these children that are his to him. Um, I think that's something that we have to really firmly have rooted in our minds and our hearts that the children God's given us, the wife God's given us, the husband God's given us, the husband's God's given women, I have to say that today, and the, the wives God's given men, um, they, are to, they are God's. They belong to him. And, and we are to view, just as we're to view everybody as an image bearer, we're to view our spouse and our children in a special way as not only image bearers belonging to God, but as covenant gifts from God that we would that we would bring them up, that we would bring them to Christ. That's the goal. We said that at the outset of this uh, in private worship, that whatever is not leading to Christ, whatever is not bringing to Christ, that we are failing because we are not worshiping properly. Now, there are many who regularly engage in family worship who their goal is to make their children have the exact same distinctives they have. Family worship becomes more about character development or distinctives than it does about Christ. That's not what family worship is. I'm going to say that this morning. Family worship is not character development. Character development will flow as God blesses the means of grace, but that is not what family worship is. Family worship is not technically teaching your children to memorize scripture. I think that's part of it. We do that in our home. 
I don't think that's what family worship is. Family worship is the family coming together just as the church does throughout the week and calling on God in prayer and reading his word and having that word taught and singing praises to him. Family worship is coming to Jesus Christ and worshiping Jesus. So it's not schooling, even though there's an element of schooling involved. It is worship. And so I want to I emphasize that. Now, notice that Paul says in verse 4, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The job of parents is to bring your children up as Christians. Um, I have in Presbyterian and Reformed churches seen parents completely ignore this. I have seen in Baptist churches where they reject the idea of the covenant, parents faithfully obey this. So this is not saying know your child's covenant status and everything else is good. It's not saying, well, my child is baptized. We're going to have a baptism today. They're okay. They're baptized. The pastor does his job. The Sunday school teachers do their job. The Bible says, fathers, bring your children up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, clearly... What Paul has in mind is the centrality of Scripture, that there is no teaching about God the Father, there is no teaching about Jesus Christ, there is no teaching about the Holy Spirit, there is no instruction, there is no training without Scripture. And so as with everything else, as with private worship, Scripture is to be central in our homes. I think that a person who has had their lives changed by the grace of God through the Scriptures comes to realize that without being told that. Um, I've been shocked at how often I've seen in even Presbyterian churches, even in our own denomination, parents that seem to have a lack of confidence in the scripture. Well, my child's rebelling. I don't know what to do. Well, are you, are you writing scripture out to them? Are you writing them letters and putting scripture in it? Are you putting scripture on index cards and giving it to them? Well, no. I mean, I feel like they need to come to a place where they, they figure it out on their own. No. That's unbiblical. It's unbiblical to say my child needs to figure this out on their own. You are commanded. We are commanded to bring them up and to nurture them. When I was 19 years old, and I tell you often, severely rebellious and in deep darkness, my dad, much to my embarrassment then, much to my thankfulness now, would pursue me at houses where I was hanging out with some very wicked people. That was a good dad. That was a dad that brought me and my sister up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Um, I'll tell you a story that I hope you don't think less of me for this, but it's impressed in my thinking. Um, it's always dangerous to reveal specifics, but I'll tell you, I had, um, I had been out one night and, and doing some substantial drugs and had come home, had had a bad night, had laid in bed awake all night, not able to fall asleep. And at 7 a.m., my dad gets me up, doesn't know I've been out. I used to sneak out. That's why you get an alarm system now. It's the only reason you need an alarm system is so your kids don't sneak out. Oh, that my dad had, well, he knows. Um, but I uh, had come home and, and had laid in bed all night, and my dad got me up at, 
about seven in the morning. I'll never forget this. He sat me down. He said, we're going to do devotions. And he got the daily light out. I was not converted. Um, And I remember what he read that day. I was 19 years old. And the daily light that day, I don't know, I probably could find this, but the first verse was, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness and follows me will have the light of life. And I remember hearing the voice of Jesus in a clear and living way. I don't think I was converted. I really don't. I think that God was speaking very clearly to me that morning. I'd been in much darkness. And the first verse that my dad read to me was, I am the light of the world. He who walks in darkness and comes to me will have the light of life. So even when your children are rebellious, if they are rebellious, what they need is for you as parents to bring them up in the training and the admonition of the Lord. Your goal is not for your children to like you. I think the reason most parents don't do what my father did is because they want their children to like them. And they're afraid their children won't like them. Nowhere in here does it say, fathers, make sure your children like you. He does say, don't provoke them to anger. They should like you. I love my dad for who he is and what he did. I didn't like it then. He used to say, look at me. And I would stare him right there so I didn't have to look him in the eyes while I got lectured. Don't do that. <laughs> and know that your children might. Um, so the goal of family worship is to bring your children up and, and we're to have a confidence that God is going to use his word in the home, in worship, to transform our children. That is God's primary chief means of grace. Now, how do we do this? Here's some practical things you can do. As I said, I think the daily light is incredible. I will continue pushing that. I like the Whitaker edition. The ESV Crossway version is a very fine version. It's online. Use it. I read it this morning before church. I was rushed. I didn't have a lot of time. I was stressed out, as you always see me stressed out on Sunday mornings. But I took time to read the scriptures in the daily light. And it's like getting steroids injected into you when you read the daily light. Because the work is being done. And it's like an injection of God's word for you. So use that in family worship. You know, one of the beautiful things about the daily light is that it's manageable. Eight or nine verses max. Um, Let me say this. When you set out to do devotions with your children, whether they're young or grown, and again, I want to say if they're in college and they come home, do it with them. You didn't do it when they were growing up. Start now. Just start now. I had a mentor who said to me once, you know, people are always saying you can't pick your kids' friends and you can't do this. And he said, sure you can. You're the parents. You can do whatever you want. (laughs) Let that sink in. (laughs) You can't abuse your kids, obviously, but you're the parents. You can can do whatever you want to do. God calls you to do all kinds of things your kids aren't going to like. And there's going to be many times they don't want you to sit down with them and read scripture. I would say this. Don't exasperate them. Don't wear them out. You don't have to do 40 minutes. There have been times I've worn my kids out. My wife has very wisely said, "Hun, maybe we should shorten this up a little bit. She's right. She's right. Anybody that knows me, I know I have the propensity. I am the son of my father. I have the propensity to go long and... So keep it short. The daily light is nice because it keeps it manageable. 
Um, 15 minutes in the morning, 15 minutes at night, that's a good time of devotion with your family. The kids are going to grow. They're going to be blessed. Now, it takes more than just reading the scriptures. It takes explanation of the scriptures. And I think this is where some people shy away, and understandably so. I understand why many fathers feel like they don't know the Bible as well as they should. You know, I'm at an advantage to many others because I've had graduate and postgraduate studies and years and years and years of theological study. And yet, I had to work at that, and we all have to work at what we do. You don't have to have a seminary degree to do this, but we are called to work. We're called to work and knowing the scriptures and understanding it. I, I like to say to fathers, when you do devotions with your children, it might help you to formulate a plan, pick a book of the Bible. Take Colossians, for instance. It's a short book. I always say start with short books. If you haven't been used to doing this, start with you know, Colossians or Ephesians. Pick something manageable. Don't take First Chronicles as your first book, possibly, or Isaiah with its 60 glorious chapters, don't, or 66, I'm sorry. Don't take, don't take the longest, most difficult possible book you can to start devotion. Start with something manageable. Start with something that has a lot of clear didactic teaching. Maybe the Gospel of Mark would be good to start with. If you want to do a narrative... A Christ-centered, focused narrative marks great. It's manageable, small portions. And here's what I encourage fathers and mothers to do. I would say start reading ahead. Get one commentary. Calvin's always great. Matthew Henry's usually pretty good. You could start with just them. You could keep it with just them. Um, And do 30 minutes of preparation for your own benefit and then take that to your family and do it with your family. Uh, my best friend Stephen said to me when I was young, because he was constantly teaching me things out of the scripture, he was constantly coming and saying, look at this, look at this, look at this. And, and then I'd go and I'd see amazing things and I'd start teaching others and then it would become more significant to me. And one day I said, why is it that whenever I teach somebody else something, I feel like I'm benefiting from it? And he's like, well, you, you keep what you give away. You keep what you give away. Have that mindset in family worship. You know, you feed your own souls, dads and moms, and then you give that away to your children. They benefit from it. You benefit again. The preparation you did comes into that. You don't have to be doing 20 different things, one for you, one for your family, one for church, one for men's group. I always say kill as many birds as you can with one stone. When I write articles, I try to use them in as many places as I can. The church newsletter, maybe a magazine, I put them on my website when I can in time. Use things that you've benefited from with your family in family worship. Um, Make sure that you're always trying to bring the gospel in, in family worship. One of the things that God has given fathers to train their sons is the Proverbs. I read an article recently called Father to Son Talks, I think it was on Christianity.com, and um, I had a lengthy quote in there about how the Proverbs are not, they're not meant to be merely character development, that's a mistake a lot, especially in the fundamentalist world make, because there's a lot of law exposition in the Proverbs, but they are to show you your need for the wise and righteous one, Jesus Christ 
who is the perfectly wise and righteous man who fulfills everything that's outlined in the Proverbs and then makes that a reality in your life as you trust him by faith. So I just took there in two minutes one of the books that you could easily abuse in teaching your children. You could easily just teach them legalistic principles and send them out and be like, do this. And then they're like, well, what happens when I curse my father and mother and the, it says the bird's going to pluck out my eye? I need a savior. You've got to teach your children when they disobey, they need a savior. They need a savior to walk obediently. They need the one who fulfilled all things for them and that everything they need is in him. That's the whole point of the Bible. And so that should be the point of family worship. Um, I, I am wholeheartedly convinced that while we are to teach them the whole counsel of God, we are always to get them to the Savior. We're always to get them to the cross. We're always to get them to the resurrection. There are times you'll fail to do that, and you just, when you do, you pick up, you go forward, you labor to do that. Come to me. If, you're, if you are wanting to do this as husbands and wives or as parents with children, and you're struggling, you're like, I don't understand. I, I get paid to serve you. I get paid to be your servant and under-shepherd of Jesus. Everything I've studied over the years is to be for you and your benefit. So call me, write me. That's why I'm here. That's part of why I'm your pastor. Um, I can point you to any kind of helps that you need with any probably any book that you would like to work through in family worship, and it would be a delight to me to be able to help you in giving you manageable things. I'll try not to overwhelm you with too much heavy stuff. Um, But the goal should always be to teach our children the scriptures, to get them the gospel, and then to talk about how that should impact their lives. So those are the three steps. Reading and understanding the scripture, how does it relate to the person and work of Jesus, and how then does it apply to their lives? That's, those are the three basic easy steps in teaching um, our children in family worship what God says in his word. Um, as I said, I would keep it short. We usually do in our home, we sing more songs maybe than Anna and the boys would like. I like to do a lot of songs because it takes me a while to get my heart warmed up. And the Puritans talked about singing, warming the soul, and setting the soul ablaze. And I like to just keep doing that until their soul's not ablaze and mine mine is. So don't wear them out. We'll talk about music next week, Lord willing. We'll talk about what you can do if you're not a musician. I mean, we live in the best day in human history when there are resources on Spotify and every other kind of internet site where you can sing along with hymns you know with just about anybody who's produced them and recorded them, any style you like, there's just an abundance, and we'll talk about that. Um, but I generally start with prayer and or singing, and then we go to scripture, and then we close with a time of prayer. And that's family worship. It shouldn't be overwhelming. It shouldn't, it shouldn't feel like this huge thousand-pound weight on you. Sing a hymn, read a shorter portion of scripture, Uh, I'd like to say work through a book, pick Colossians. Maybe you do the first four verses in Colossians. Let me me go there. I've not done any preparation for this other than I've preached through Colossians and at this church in the past. But I'll just give you an example of what I would do here as we close out our time this morning. Can't even find Colossians. You got to find Colossians first. That's 
that's the first thing. So learn the books of the Bible. We have a great books of the Bible uh, song at home. If you have young children, we're happy to teach you that, give you a recording of that. Um, So, for instance, Paul's introduction, you might take the first two verses for your family worship the next time you guys sit down. Paul, an apostle of of Christ Jesus by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren or brothers in Christ at Colossae, Grace to you and peace from God our Father. There are so many things you can teach, especially if you have young children, but even grown children need this. Listen, I talk to 30-year-olds who have been in the church for years in certain churches. They don't know anything. So sadly, a lot of covenant kids being taught at a very young age diligently know more than most adults, even a lot of kids that grew up in churches but never had this done for them. So whatever age... You, I, if I did this, I would talk about with our boys who Paul is. If they know who Paul is, I would talk to them about what an apostle is. Paul, an apostle. What was an apostle? An apostle was a sent one. Jesus commissioned them to proclaim the gospel. What is the gospel? We would then talk about the gospel. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So God made Paul an apostle. Paul didn't make himself an apostle. I would ask the boys, do you understand what we're saying there. If they don't, I would then break it down further that Paul didn't decide, I want to go in ministry. God called him and appointed him. It was by the will of God. God set him apart and sent him out to represent Jesus Christ, to be an ambassador for Jesus, to tell people about Jesus. And then if I went on, and I might talk about Timothy, but if I go to verse 2, I might say, who is Paul writing? Paul is writing the saints and faithful in Christ at Colossae. And I would tell our children, if you're in Jesus, you are a saint. You are a set-apart one. You are holy in Jesus because Jesus is holy. And everything that's true of him becomes true of us. Um, You could go on and you could talk about how they're in Christ and they're in Colossae and how we live in the world but we're in union with Jesus. We're in Christ. And that means we're to be faithful as those united to Jesus here in Richmond Hill. I would say to my kids, you are saints in Christ in Richmond Hill. Richmond Hill needs you to be a faithful believer in Jesus here in this place. God has you specifically here and he's put you in his son. And then I might talk about grace and peace from God our Father. Now that that was just a quick, what is, it, what is grace, what is peace, how does God give us that? So you're, maybe you can start seeing, just asking those questions yourself as you go through a passage, and then thinking, and I generally like to think, my children probably aren't tracking with me. And then they surprise me, and they're like, I'm like, what's an apostle? And they'd they're sent by Jesus. And I'm like, wow, that's amazing. <laughs> they were actually listening. And they, they learn it, and then they surprise you, and then you eat the fruit of your labors, and it's amazing, and everybody wins. And hopefully they'll be with Jesus in glory forever because we were faithful in some sense, though very, very inconsistently. Um, that's the last thing I'll say, and then I'll take questions is, you're going to fail. Do not embrace failure. But do not live in condemnation because you fail. You go back to Jesus. You ask the Lord to forgive you. 
You know that he's atoned for our failures and our sin, our inconsistencies, and we go forward in his grace and mercy. We live in the same grace and mercy that we tell our children is theirs in Christ. Um, I'll say this and then I'll, I'll stop. The gospel that we say we believe, or the gospel that we we articulate is the gospel that we have to believe. And it's at those moments when we fail that we need to believe that gospel. And we need to do that to go forward. So you're going to make mistakes. Don't embrace failure, but don't live in condemnation. Go back to Christ. Go forward in doing this. Questions or comments here for us this morning? Yes. I do not assume that my children are elect. This is a big discussion. We're going to have a baptism today, so this is an important question and very relevant. I believe that my children are Christians in the sense that they are part of the covenant community. They are in covenant with God. They have been set apart from the world. Now, this is a complicated question. Covenant doesn't equal election. It's a whole subject I could teach you 20 weeks on covenant theology. We're kind of going through that a bit in men's group, but on a more focused way, there are both believers and unbelievers in covenant with God. It is professing believers and their children who God always covenanted with in history. If you ask me, are my children Christians? I would say in the sense that they are federally represented by Jesus as king in his church. Doesn't mean they're savingly united to him. But they are under his tutelage, they're under his administration, his kingly office, his priestly office, his prophetic office, in that they hear the word, they see the people of God worshiping him, they're being nurtured in the visible body. I often don't use the phrase, if someone asked me, are your children Christians? I just said, I think they're Christians in a specific sense. If you said, do you think, because I think the word Christian in, in our understanding means a, a born again believer. They have a new heart, they're regenerate. No. I would never say, I don't know. I don't know if my children are regenerate or not. The only reason I ask is because in your example, you said, when you used mm-hmm. the word saint, mm-hmm. you called your, you said, you guys are saints. I did that because Paul writes to the Ephesians, okay. and he calls them saints, and then he addresses children. Now, my Baptist friends would say, well, that's grown children who have made a public profession of faith. I just have a very hard time with that. I think Paul addresses the church on their profession of faith or their covenant status. So it's, Paul's not saying you're absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, regenerate. He doesn't say that to anybody. But he does speak to them as if they have the reality of the thing, according to a judgment of charity. Um, I do tell my children Jesus died for them. I would never do that to an unbeliever out in the world. The apostles never say Jesus died for you. I challenge you to search the scriptures and find one example of evangelism where an apostle ever said Jesus Christ died for you. They say that to the professing believers and their children in, in the visible church. Um, they, do see, they do say Christ Jesus died, rose again, and if you repent and believe, you'll have your sins forgiven. But they never say God loves you so much to an unbelieving group or Jesus died for you. Never. Um, I think we have to be careful because I do think we can, and I'm always careful, I don't want to give my children false assurance. So even as I would treat them 
by virtue of their covenant membership, that they've been set apart by God. We talk about baptism as the engagement ring that once they repent and believe becomes the wedding band. Um, Is it possible? And here's one of the challenges. Um, At what age can God regenerate one of our children? I've got any age, any age, any other answers will be wrong. So (laughs) any other answers? (laughs) any age. God the Holy Spirit is not limited to intellectual ability. Otherwise, we're saying that every infant that dies in infancy perishes. We would never say that. John the Baptist heard the greeting of Mary, and he jumped up and down in her womb for joy that Jesus had come. So obviously, the Holy Spirit was doing something in John the Baptist in the womb, and it actually says he heard when the babe heard the greeting. How 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 could a baby? I don't know. I'm just telling you what God the Holy Spirit says. So we want to be careful, but at the same time, the Bible doesn't say God regenerates all children. I think our confession of faith is the most careful in saying all elect infants who die in infancy go to glory. So that could be all of them. That could be some of them. It's that's as far as we can go. Is that if they've been chosen by God, God will regenerate them. We would apply the same thing to people who are mentally handicapped, who don't have the ability to understand or to hear someone in a coma, some, that someone who is in a, a state of um, uh, seeming unconsciousness. And that's why our confession says ordinarily it's through the ministry of the word. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word. How can they call on him of whom they've not heard? Yet there's these extraordinary circumstances where clearly God works that way. I'll say this last thing. I think that the way that we should view our children is with hopeful expectation that God will bless the diligent use of the means of his grace in in bringing them to himself. And then we should pray knowing it all depends on him and his covenant promises. But we have to also be able to say he doesn't have to save any of them. Abraham's children weren't all saved, and he's the father of the faithful. Isaac's children weren't all saved, and he was the covenant head for a time. So there's that tension between hopeful expectation based on covenant promises and the reality that God chooses whom he will, and he's merciful to whom he will. So it's that holding those two things. Is that helpful? Other questions or comments? Yes, George. Right, but God the Holy Spirit can regenerate, convict, and unite an infant to Jesus because he's not limited by our intellectual ability. Otherwise, we would say any child under four, let's say, I'm just throwing that out there, can't be saved. And so that's the difficulty here. But normally, George is right. We don't want to ever not emphasize the need for repentance and faith because God requires repentance and faith. So that's the right concern to have. But we have to say that God can regenerate and cause a child, an infant to trust in Jesus and unite them to the Savior in the womb. And we, we have to say that. Um, any other questions or comments? Yes.
I, I, I use social media as sort of my pastoral diary, okay? So uh, some men use Evernotes. Some people use a Word document. Some people use a journal. I use Facebook and Twitter, and then it's all there, and I can cut and paste it and use it later, and other people hopefully will benefit from it. <laughs> so I do, I do post a lot of stuff that I'm reading in the morning if I'm reading other books or out of devotions. I, do, I, I kind of log my devotions. Well, the word, I, I should I should have emphasized the word training actually is synonymous with the word nurture and nourish that he uses earlier, so that the contrast is between the, the demeanor, not as long as you're doing it, even if you're doing it legally, you're not provoking them to wrath. Right. It's, it's almost like that, that's compared to wrath, to, to causing them to wrath, although I'm not sure how yeah. that works out. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's the demeanor, not the actual act itself he's contrasting. So how the manner in which it should be carried out. Because if we're exasperating our children, if we're heavy-handed, then we're not bringing them up in that nourishment and admonition in, in a Christ-honoring way. So, Any other questions or comments? All right, let me pray for us, and you'll have a little time to fellowship. Father, thank you for giving us families. Thank you for the children you've given us. Thank you for the wives you've given us and the husbands that you've given the wives here. We thank you, our God, for how good you are to be a God to families and to our families. And we pray that you would make us faithful and that you would redeem our children. We pray, Lord, that you would fulfill your covenant promises in all of our children and all of their children until Christ comes again. Lord Jesus, please have mercy on us and prepare us to worship this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.